Welcome to 84 Ounces of free to Freedom. I am your host, Mr. Cole. Um, this is a podcast where I am an expert on trucks and I only talk about trucks. And uh, it's hilarious. Some truck drivers out there that are long haul drivers have started following me and stuff. And <clears throat> I joined some groups. So keep listening, guys. And sorry you figure out what this really is or... If I ever figure it out, I hope you like it. Um, I did get some listener feedback, finally. Uh, I heard secondhand through my wife. Um, this particular listener said that, um, <clears throat> you know, you can tell by the end of the episode that he's drunk. Well, I hate to shock you all, but I am drinking real alcohol during the making of these podcasts. And this time I thought, you know... I would drink before the podcast so that doesn't happen. So as you know, I, I have in the last few episodes, I've talked about Flavere, which is a, a spirits a quarterly shipping company that is very cool. Um, I'm mainly into it for the whiskeys, which I really like. And um, last month I got a... a uh, bottle of Hercules Mulligan. It's a rum and rye whiskey with crushed gingers and bitter in it, bitters in it. So it's basically a uh, old-fashioned pre-made, and that's what I'm drinking right now. Ah, it's really good. Supposedly there's only 2,000 of these bottles made. I was able to get a, a bottle for my dad for Christmas and um, Get a Flavert membership and get Hercules Mulligan rum and rye while you can, because it is good. Um, but before the episode, um, I had a three-vial taster that they do. This particular taster was called A Tale of Three Whiskeys. And it and I had whiskeys from Japan, Israel, and a whiskey from the UK. Uh, they're all very interesting, but what was cool, you can go to the... And I'm going to pronounce it correctly because the dude on the guided tasting pronounced it Flaviar. Flaviar. I've been saying Flaver. I'm American. I'm going to mispronounce every fucking thing, especially when I'm drinking. But Flaviar is the company. And um, he takes you through a guided tasting of these three different whiskeys. And he teaches you how to look at it how to smell it and how to drink it and how to taste it and gives a lot of um, really interesting history on it. I, I strongly recommend if you're into whiskey or bourbon or any spirit for that matter, get a membership to Flaviar. Um, and if you want to get a membership through me, I have like my code I can send you and I believe we both get a free bottle for doing that. So Message me on the Facebook, Messenger, whatever the hell, um, if you want to do that. And uh, we'll both get free bottles. Pretty cool. Uh, I did reach out to them, and I got... Uh, they said that they forwarded it to their <coughs> PR people. And I haven't heard a thing. Oh, did I mention I have a cool ice cube in this whiskey from... My gift from Justin, thank you very much, Justin Johnson, for these cool ice cube forms. It's what you want, a big round hunk of ice that uh, 
you can kind of hear it there. Uh, gives you a lot of surface area and it is just great. Um, so this first thing I want to talk about is um, about a medical serial killer. As you know, we tend to talk about them on this podcast. But I've got a dramatic intro and I was going to have like some keyboard music in the background to make it even more dramatic. But um, I fucked that off. So I'm just going to read it as dramatically as I can and you make uh, your decision what you think. Okay, here we go. The Whitechapel Murders. Do prostitutes in the poor living conditions of the East End slums deserve to be stabbed, throttled, strangled, dismembered, and suffer abdominal mutilation? Who is this nemesis of neglect, this social destitution that plagued the streets in 1888? We still don't know, and we may never know. Lambeth, a place riddled with poverty, petty crime, and prostitution. Did the prostitutes there deserve to be racked by muscle spasms, foam at the mouth, twist into inhumanly impossible contortions, and finally die as their lungs can no longer draw air and collapse as their muscles give out? Can this be the same plague of man? I am Jack the... Pretty dramatic, eh? So Thomas Neal Cream was a medical serial killer known as the Lambeth Poisoner. He killed five or more people with the use of strychnine. He was born in May 1850 in Glasgow. Cream graduated from McGill University in 1876. He always wanted to be a doctor. He immediately got in trouble with a girl he'd been dating during his internship. Flora Brooks became ill after Cream visited her. She was taken to a, dis- a doctor that discovered she'd recently been given abortion. an abortion. The men in the Brooks family got all fired up and forced Cream to do the right thing. Thomas Neal Cream and Flora Brooks were married. <laughs> and he left the next mon- morning for London, England. In 1877, Flora died of consumption. It was later discovered that some pills Cream mailed to her were the actual cause of her death. Once he got his certification, he went to Canada and started his practice in London, Ontario. He was doing well until the corpse of Kate Gardner was found in the shack behind his surgery. She was found to have been poisoned by chloroform, and she was pregnant. It was believed that her death was the result of a failed abortion. Cream said under interrogation that he refused the abortion and that the murder was the father of a prominent gentleman in society that was trying to keep his tryst secret. Cream was facing murder charges and blackmail charges, so he headed to the USA. Cream set up a new practice, conveniently close to the red light district in Chicago quickly became known as a local abortionist. Marianne Faulkner was found dead in her apartment as a result of Cream's performance of an abortion. Another woman died after taking his anti-pregnancy pill. 
the active ingredient was strychnine. He had a great lawyer that got him off on both of these charges, but he couldn't get him off on the next big scandal. Mr. Scott was so impressed with Cream's various snake oils, he sent his wife to Cream so she could get treatment for, from him also. Before long, Cream was having an affair with Mr. Scott's wife, Julia Scott. When Mr. Scott started to figure out that something was rotten in Denmark, Cream added strychnine to Mr. Scott's meds. Daniel Scott died on June 14, 1881. Cream went to trial for Daniel Scott's murder and Julia Scott turned on him. He received life in prison at the Juliet State Penitentiary. After a decade, these years that he was incarcerated will become important later in the story. So if you remember, Cream's brother got him released with his political connections and bribes. In 1891, Cream was back in London. He gave a drink to Ellen Nellie Donworth, a 19-year-old prostitute. She died of strychnine poisoning the next day. In a strange blackmailing ploy, he wrote to the coroner that he would name the murderer for 300,000 pounds. He also wrote to another man <clears throat> and accused him of the murder and demanded money from him to remain silent. A couple weeks later, Cream was with 27-year-old prostitute Matilda Clover. She died the next morning, but she was a severe alcoholic, and her cause of death was attributed to her alcoholism. Cream wrote a note to another prominent doctor accusing him of the murder and demanding money for his silence. The doctor immediately gave the letter to police. After a vacation in Canada, Cream came back to London and met Lou Harvey. He convinced her to meet him later to go have some drinks. She didn't trust him. She got, like, a weird feeling from this goofy dude. He gave her two pills that would, he said, put color back into her cheeks. She pretended to take them but tossed them away when he wasn't looking. Cream, thinking she was poisoned, claimed to have an appointment he'd forgotten about and hurried off. A couple weeks later, he was welcomed into a flat that was rented by two prostitutes, Alice Marsh, 21, and Emma Marsh. I don't have her age for some reason. They had drinks, and Cream gave them pills that he claimed stopped venereal disease, a popular medication amongst prostitutes. Both of these women suffered horrible effects. I mean, I'm sorry, horrible deaths. Cream met a policeman from New York and he had heard of the Lambeth prisoner. Cream gave the man a tour of where the murders happened, including Matilda Clower and Lou Harvey. The American mentioned it to a British policeman who found it suspicious that Cream had so much detailed information and Matilda Clover's manner of death was attributed to alcoholism. She wasn't considered to be one of the Lambeth Poisoner's victims. Lou Harvey wasn't known to the police at all. It was like Cream was dying for recognition of some kind and it's putting him in a bad position. Police put him under surveillance and found out about his 10 years in jail for poisoning Mr. Scott. On June 3rd, 1892, he was arrested for murder. 
His trial lasted from the 17th to the 21st of October that year. He acted like he wasn't worried during the trial until the police produced Lou Harvey. As far as Cream was concerned, she was a ghost. It took the jury 10 minutes to deliver a guilty charge. His brother couldn't help him this time. Cream was hung on November 15, 1892. His last words before the trap was opened were, I'm Jack the... It's believed that he was trying to say that he was Jack the Ripper. But if you remember the years he was incarcerated in the U.S., those were the years Jack the Ripper was active. So there's no way he could have been him. One of Cream's biographers think that he was so afraid on the scaffold that he lost control of his bodily functions and that he was trying to say, I'm ejaculating. Um, which sounds like a ridiculous conspiracy theory to me. But what about the brother? If not for him pulling his strings to get Cream out of prison in America, all those women would have lived. And uh, we can kind of tell he's not Jack the Ripper. Um, this next section is about, I believe, the two biggest murder-suicides in California ever. And I think in all 50 states, maybe the world. Um, I got a dramatic intro here, too, and no music for it. You ready? Here's my dramatic info for what I call I am the problem. What makes a man choose to be God when a man's life is at the end of what makes sense? Jobless, in debt, marital problem, and there's nowhere else to go and suicide isn't enough. So God with a gun decides that everybody dies at 10,000 feet. This story is about the two largest mass murder suicides in California history. Although they are very similar, they are separated by 23 years. This was rec recommended to me by my dad, Homer, or the OG, Mr. Cole. He's got a few AKAs, the original Mr. Cole, AKA Homer, AKA Ken Cole, AKA the stag that grew with the brew, AKA stag the brew that grew with the great Northwest, as some of you will recall. Pacific Airlines flight 773 crashed on May 7th, 1964 near Danville, California. It is believed that this crash was the first aerial murder-suicide ever in the U.S. history. Francisco Paula Gonzalez lived in San Francisco and was an in-debt warehouse worker with marital and financial difficulties. He was depressed and disturbed. He was so in debt that half his income went to bills. He gave many, many warning signs that were ignored. He would mention that he would die soon to friends and relatives. He often quoted the actual day it would happen. 
He purchased a Model 27 357 Magnum. He showed the guns to friends at the airport and even told one person that he was going to kill himself as he gambled the night before the flight. He told a Reno casino worker that he didn't care how much he lost because it wouldn't make any difference after tomorrow. Flight 773 headed to San Francisco with 41 passengers, including Gonzalez and three crew members. The Air Route Traffic Controller Center got a garbled message from Flight 773 and it promptly disappeared from radar. Gonzalez broke into the cockpit a few minutes before the plane was to land and shot both pilots twice. He then shot the first officer as the plane went into a dive. The critically wounded first officer tried to correct. As he was bringing the plane back up to altitude, Gonzalez shot him again, and then he shot himself. The plane dug a crater into the California hillside, killing all 41 passengers. The last radio message was from the first officer. Quote, I've been shot. We've been shot. Oh, God, help. One of the last things he did was purchase a $105,000 or yeah, $105,000 life insurance for his wife. I couldn't find out if she was able to collect. 23 years later, Flight 1771 on December 7th, 1987, would become the second worst murder-suicide in California history. This was caused by disgruntled employee David Burke. David Burke worked as a ticketing agent and lost his job due to stealing $69 from the in-flight bar receipts. He was also suspected of working for a drug ring. He met with his manager, Ray Thompson, to plead for his job back. Ray Thompson said no. Burke bought a ticket for flight 1771, which was the same flight that Thomas Ray took for his daily commute. Burke borrowed a Smith & Wesson Model 24 44 Magnum revolver from a friend. Since Burke kept his credentials, he was able to bypass a passenger checkpoint. He got on the plane through the locked crew door. The access code was scratched on the plane just above the lock. Burke wrote a not to Ray. Burke wrote on a vomit. Fuck me. Burke wrote on a vomit bag something that said, Hi, Ray. I think it's kind of ironical that we would end up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family. Remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none. The cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of someone entering and leaving the bathroom. They think that this is when Burke took out and loaded his gun. The captain was asking air traffic control about turbulence when the CVR recorded gunshots. Burke shot Ray Thompson twice. The last transmission, the last transmission was shots fired. The CVR recorded a flight attendant saying, we have a problem. The captain asked, what's the problem? A shot is heard. Then Burke replied, I'm the problem.
then two more shots can be heard, which killed the pilots, and then Burke pressed the controls into a dive. One more shot is heard. Either Burke shot another pilot that was a passenger on the plane, or he shot himself. The tip of his finger was still found on the gun. Investigators think that this means that he did not shoot himself, but held the gun until impact. The plane crashed into a hillside on a cattle ranch in Santa Lucia Mountains. Impact was at 770 miles, and it dis disintegrated instantly. The crash was so violent that only 11 passengers could be identified out of 43. All 43 passengers died. So this next part is just kind of an interesting historical thing to me um, that came to me after I watched a, a kind of movie, and I'll get to it. This is called Tug of War Fatality. I watched the Squid Games not too long ago, and the tug of war mean war scene made me think of tug of war fatalities. There's some urban legends about it that I've always been aware of, but never really verified. Tug of war has been around for over 4,000 years, dating back to the Egyptians and the Greeks. It was introduced by British sailors in the late 1800s, from 1900 to 1920, it was actually a, an Olympic sport. There's actually a tug-of-war international federation. It hosts a biannual, biannual world championship. Tug-of-war injuries usually result from organizers that don't know what the fuck they're doing. They stem from the wrong kind of rope being used, or an under, underestimation of the force generated by the game. On June 13, 1978, in Pennsylvania, the entire Harrisburg Middle School tried to break the Guinness World Record for the largest tug-of-war. 2,300 students began the match. After 12 minutes, the 2,000-foot-long rope snapped. 200 students laid on the ground, wounded. Five suffered severed fingertips and one lost a thumb. Hundred more suffered from second-degree burns. In June 1995, in June 1995, a man wrapped the rope around his hand in Chattanooga, Tennessee. When the other team pulled, the rope tore his hand off. A few days later in Frankfurt, Germany, several troops of Boy Scouts set out to beat the world record. In the minutes after the 650-person match began, the rope snapped. One end snapped back like a rubber band and killed a nine-year-old instantly. 102 other boys were severely injured and one died from suffocation as he was buried under a mass of tumbling bodies. In October 1997, Taiwan was, was celebrating the Retrocession Day. I don't know what that is. 1,600 participants played tug-of-war with a two-inch thick rope. When the rope snapped, it tore the left arm off the first man on each side. 
40 other participants suffered injuries. Many of them were internal. Another man slipped his hand into a hoop of rope. The pressure crushed his palm and he lost four fingers before the match could be stopped. Two 17-year-old boys put their hands into a loop of rope and both suffered amputation. Less than a year later, an eight-year-old girl lost four fingers in a similar incident. Tug of War is no joke. Do it right or be like me and don't participate in any sport whatsoever unless it's, you know, beer pong. So this episode, episode 18, I got another too extreme for the mainstream movie. And although this is an American guinea pig movie and it's not listed, I don't think, under the too extreme for mainstream um, this is 2017 American guinea pig series written, directed, and produced by Stephen Byro of Unearthed Films. Um, and I reached out to Stephen Byro on the last episode when I talked about his, um, bouquet of guts and blood and, and said, Hey man, check out my podcast. If you got time, I talk about your movie. Uh, let me know if I got anything wrong, right or wrong or whatever. And he replied, yeah, you pretty much got it, <laughs> which was kind of cool to hear back. The guy is uh, really cool and genuine, and we had some discussion about some films. Um, I'm not reviewing it here, but I talked about, I, I told him all, I, I just uh, bought his film 29 Needles. And he thought, oh yeah, dude, that film's fucked up. And I was like, oh, I can't wait. So just a cool guy, um, loves what he's doing. And uh, I've listened to a lot of interviews with him and stuff. And um, man, this movie, this movie you can stream for free on Tubi or you can rent it on Prime if you don't want the commercial interruptions. Or even better yet, buy it on Earth Unearthed Films website and you get all the special content and, and stuff. Uh, the movie is called The Song of Solomon. And if you've ever seen Exorcist, you know Exorcist is the classic uh, possession film. And there's a, a million shitty ones out there. Um, but this movie is like The Exorcist times 10. This is, this is an exorcism film you've always wanted. I don't know how I didn't know about this the day it came out, but thanks to my friends like Dom and JD on the post-mortem show, that's how I find out about these things. And that's exactly where I found out about this film. And when I found out, oh shit, I can watch it on the Tubi, I fucking watch this shit immediately. Um, this film is full of practical gore and it slays its way through priests like you can't believe like you know in the exorcist the one priest comes and he does everything he can you know how it ends this this film goes through priests uh steven byro said in an interview that she, you should really pay attention to what the possessed person says and on the second viewing you'll get it so before this podcast i did watch it again and and there is more going on this film than you see on the surface and watching it again, you kind of understand the deeper things that are going on. I mean, 
I think I could watch this again and, and get even more out of it. It's such a great horror film. And um, it does not fuck around. This film starts with a guy giving himself a Colombian necktie. That's where you, he cuts his own throat and pulls his tongue through the slit. And that's in the first three minutes. Uh, you will also see in this film a guy tears out his own eyes. There's boils and spew, brutal neck slash, almost a full decapitation, mercy killing, regurgitated disembowelment and reversed regurgitated disembowelment, wrist slashes, slashes, holy blood baptism, face and throat ripping, limb breaking, demonic rape, demon birth, internal C-section, and an eye stab. This movie has it all, and the gut vomit scene fucked me up. I was up and out of the room gagging the first time I watched it, and it goes on for like a punishing 15 minutes. Uh, here's what I like about this film. It's hardcore. And it's original idea on the possession genre. And if you can make me almost puke, it's an amazing movie. Plus, you really do need to watch it twice to understand the twists and the motives of the character. And, it's, and you don't feel so pukey in the second viewing. <clears throat> so get out there and watch um, The Song of Solomon. Uh, especially you can watch it free on the fucking Tubi. I mean, what are you waiting for? And you know... Um, Everything Steven Byro is doing right now is great. So check out Unearthed Films. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. This Hercules mulligan is starting to work. If you like the show, um, I'm on Patreon. Um, under 84 ounces to freedom. It's the numbers 84, the letters OZ, the number 2, and the word freedom. 100% of the money, money donated goes to alcohol. I guarantee that. Uh, check out my YouTube channel where I make homebrew on Mr. Cole's homebrew on the YouTube. Uh, it features um, music from bands I've been in, friends bands. Um, all these bands are so underground. The underground doesn't even know. You can't even buy this music. So check it out and see how I make beer. Um, you'll hear some music from my friends. And some of my music on that channel. Um, also, I'm in Kelseyville, Lake County, California. If you're in Lake County, California, stop by my knife shop. I sell knives and coin rings at 3577 Main Street, Kelseyville, California. We also are pouring wine here. Uh, we have ice cream. There's an esthetician there's two women that do hair there's a woman that does nails it's a full gift shop i mean we got everything and we're always figuring out more shit so fucking come check us out it's called sophie's day spa but my corner is called mr cole's precious metals where i sell from a pocket knife to fucking katana swords and coin rings that i hand make if you're listening on the Apple podcast, please leave a five-star review. Fucking say something. 
I will talk about it on here. Um, say whatever you think. Give me a fucking one star and tell me how shitty I am. I'll talk about that. Um, also, do me a favor. Leave a comment. Good or bad and indifferent. Blah, blah, blah. Thank you so much for listening. Ah, I was supposed to get an alcoholic comment. So this is from Mark Twain. If if this is on the last episode also, I fucked up, but I think I did it right and I think this is new. So in the words of Mark Twain, too much of anything is bad, but too much good whiskey is barely enough. Thanks for listening.